see you guys. Uh, and uh, we are going to start a two-month, yes, two-month series talking about the third way. The third way. So this is the template. Jesus gives it to us in Matthew 5. So you can read along with me. Um, this, is, this actually is a, a dozen or so verses after what we just read, the Beatitudes. So this is, think of this as an extension of the Beatitudes and, and whom Jesus says is blessed. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asked you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, let's talk about this. This is, uh, uh, this is the template for the third way. And like anybody writing an, an essay, you start with your thesis statement. Jesus' thesis statement is, do not resist your enemy. Then he gives three supporting examples. Turn the other cheek, give your cloak, go the extra mile. And then he concludes with, by restating his thesis and even expanding on it a little bit, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If you love only those who love you and hate those who hate you, what are you offering? What's different about you? That's, that's the way everybody is. That's the default wiring of our heart. We're kind to our friends, we're mean to our enemies. That's hardwired into us. And what Jesus is saying, let your love grow and expand towards those who hate you, even. Then you will be like your Father in heaven. And he, his command of be perfect, which I just, to, to just what he means by be perfect is fulfill your purpose. Do what you were created to do, which is to show this love even to your enemies. So as you can see, this needs some unpacking. I think we've all heard this commonly preached. If you've ever had someone say to you, well, you're a Christian, right? Well, I can take something from you and you, you can't do anything back, right? And um, actually, I, I, let me just stick to my notes here. I don't know. <laughs> you're like, yeah, John. It's like, <laughs> were you spying on me this week? <laughs> People always say that to me, coworkers and whatnot. Okay, so we're gonna spend two months studying the third way of Jesus. And, and it's, gonna have, it's gonna have twofold uh, impact, I, I pray on this. One, impact number one is, it will help us navigate through the mundane, everyday conflicts of our lives. Two, it'll help us stand for justice. Those, those two, there's a application of this that is intensely personal, that you can, you can go home and apply this today to anyone whom you consider an enemy. Secondly, any major social change that we want to be engaged with, the third way is the way to institute 
societal change. Um, so we'll, we'll talk a lot about that over the next coming months. So here's where we easily get off track. Do not resist evil. What does that mean for someone trapped in an abusive relationship? For the parent of a victim of state-sponsored violence? For someone living in North Korea? What does it mean not to resist evil? Are they not to advocate for themselves? Are they meant to stay in perpetual victimhood? Or are they to insist on dignity and, and, and work towards justice and wholeness? Are we sinning when we resist evil? Or are we sinning when we comply with injustice? What is Jesus saying here? What does it mean to not resist? Well, the heart of the word is the word resist. And we have, from about this time, Greek translations of the Old Testament, which is really useful. And, and this word resist is used 71 times in the Old Testament, 44 of those times is used specifically in the context of military violence and battle. That resisting is, is 44 out of 71 times, which is, I, I would guess, about two-thirds of the time, is used specifically in the context of, of armed military conflict. The New Testament is used here. It's when Barnabas has described what he did as a, as a violent rebel against Rome. This, this word of resist is used. Uh, there's a riot in the book of Acts that the word resist is used. So it's clear that the word resist in the original Greek, it has the overtones of violence. That Jesus isn't just saying don't resist, period, full stop. He's, he's nuancing it through choosing a word that has, that is the same one that Jesus used when Peter told, well, it's, it's forbidding violent responses to violence or just more generally in-kind responses to evil. So if you think it's okay to say mean and demeaning things to those who say mean and demeaning things back to me, Jesus is saying that's resisting in this negative sense, the way that you're forbidden to do. You, are, you need to find a more creative way to resist, but without the violence and without the in-kind part. It's, it's what Jesus told Peter after Peter tried to fight for Jesus and chopped off a servant's ear. Jesus put the ear back on and said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. That's, that's the general principle here. If you live by the sword, if you live in responding in kind to evil people, then you will become evil and their fate will be yours as well. Um, Jesus, and so, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's, it's not resisting evil in general, but Jesus' way of saying we can change the rules of engagement and play by a different set of rules. Jesus achieved what he came to accomplish on victory. Christians say Jesus' death on the cross was his victory. How was that victory? Well, that is the ultimate example of the third way, but we're going to get to that. Tap the brakes, John. Do not fight violence with violence. Okay, you ready? This is, this is the part where you shift in your seat and you cross and uncross your legs, okay? You ready? Just, just expect that to come right now. If you're insulted, don't insult back. Don't resort. You know, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. You guys ready? Don't buy a handgun so you feel safe at home. Don't 
think that bombing the bad guys is going to make the world safer. This sounds naive. It sounds very naive and scary. But anytime I'm told, John, this is the real world, sometimes you need to get your hands a little bit dirty, that one of the, the, the myths that haunt the American ma imagination is the, the myth of the Western, of the guy who's good in his heart, but he's willing to do violence to protect the innocent. That, that myth of the cowboy that comes in and shoots all the bad guys and brings peace and safety is deeply seared in our mind. And Jesus saying, that does not bring peace. Not the peace you're looking for. Um, if, if, you th if this sounds naive, if the third way sounds naive, let me ask you this. Does hatred, violence, and insults move us towards peace or away from it? Maybe... It's the resistance that Jesus is talking about that's naive. It's the myth that we can redeem ourselves through violence. I'm going to call that the myth of redemptive violence. This myth out there that by killing and directing our violence towards the right groups and the right people would create a safe place for us to live is exactly that. It's a myth. It does not bring God's kingdom in. It is contrary to Jesus' teaching. Think about the difference between how we talk about martyrs and how we, we talk about um, crusaders. Those who died for their conviction and those who killed for their conviction. And how different and far away. Jesus never once said explicitly or implicitly to kill the right people, to get yourself into position, to play the games of the world. Get yourself in a position of power and authority, then use that for God's sake. You can be a culture changer if you have cultural capital. Jesus says, no, that is resisting. That is playing the games by the rules that you've been handed. Find a third way. And he gives three examples, which we're going to look at one by one. Here's why it's called the third way. In any confrontation, you have two obvious choices. They are fight and flight. They are to stand and stand your ground or to run away to live to fight another day. Uh, it's instinctual. Every mammal has a binary choice when confronted with a predator. I can either stand up and, and confront and fight the predator or I can see that I'm outmatched and run and hide somewhere else. This is in our instincts as well. It's served us for a very long time and protected us from genuine threats. But we are more than our biology. We are more than our evolutionary biology. There's a third choice that takes the fight and the flight instincts, takes the best parts of both, and combines it into a third way forward um, that, to handle conflict. So think about it this way. Flight is about avoiding conflict. It's about running away from, um, from, from a situation. So the pro is, well, it's not violent. If you run away then you've not contributed to the violence in the world. The disadvantage of it's not confrontational. It doesn't change anything. And it implicitly says, I, it's okay for you to treat me this way. It's okay for you to treat others this way. It's the way you are is okay, and I'm not going to push against and resist in any way, shape, or form what you're doing. Um, the, that old line of all evil needs to prevail is for good people to do nothing. That's applicable. It doesn't mean fighting is the response or the proper response because there's a third way, but it is a good reminder to say that avoiding conflict and saying, eh, you know, there's 
good people on both sides, that that kind of thinking is not third-way thinking. That is just a way of, of excusing our inability to do direct action in a conflict. So you think about fighting. Well, there, here's the advantage. It's direct. If you punch a bully, maybe the bully won't bully you anymore or bully anybody else and defeat it and leave you alone and everybody will put you on their back and cheer for you and let you rescue us. Um, and Jesus says, no, when you bully bullies, you're a bully. Yes, I think I got that right. Um, but the disadvantage is significant. The advantage is it's direct action, but the disadvantage is how do you fight evil in a way that you don't become evil? If you are shooting the bad guys, well, Jesus says that's what everybody does. If you're insulting your enemy and demeaning your enemy, Jesus says, well, the pagans do that. Everybody does that. If you want to be in my kingdom, you have to love, you have to expand your imagination beyond fighting and running. That there's a third way forward that can help navigate through everyday conflict and the big stuff we face. There's, there's a new script that in the temptation to, to fight and the temptation to flee, imagine a third way. And, and you know, the biggest, the biggest pushback is this, is, is about what we call the whatabouts. Uh, what, about, what about Nazi Germany? Um, you know, if you have never put on a police uniform, pulled a car over, come up to the window, seen somebody fidgeting, get the sense that you're in danger, see their hands starting to drift towards your jacket, then maybe be careful how you tell cops how to do their job. I, this, I know this series is gonna get me in a lot of trouble. I just, this is what I wanna say. I, we don't have to have answers to all the questions to begin living the third way. You don't have to say, I understand what we should have done in the conflict against the Nazis and when that began, to begin living in third way terms. Just because there's holes and gaps in our understanding of how this applies globally to locally to, to our questions about uh, military use, to questions about police violence, so all these questions, there's, it's really easy to be simplistic, which is why, and, and some of you are gonna nonviolent agree with, disagree with me, and that's, that's okay, because I'm, trying to get to a full-blown um, pacifist position, and I'm struggling to get there because of some hurdles. And I understand that my gaps, my, the, the questions I have that keep me from getting there, the good friends that I have that are, that are police officers, the good friends that I have that are in the military, honoring their faith, believing that you can live the third way by putting a, a police uniform on absolutely with all my heart. But understanding also that you can rely on force in a way that perpetuates violence in our neighborhoods rather than being a peace officer. So I understand I'm not gonna answer all the questions in this and that's okay. My incomplete and imperfect understanding of the third way is still sufficient for me to try to live it out. And I, and I hope that is for you. And know that there's gonna be some gaps, ways that we disagree and how that's applied. That's fine, we're a church, we have different opinions about lots of things and I just wanna put my cards on the table and say that's where I'm at that's what that's where, I'm, that's where I'm wrestling with. And now it's time to talk about turning the other cheek. Okay? Now, turning the other cheek sounds like flight. It sounds like, thank you, sir, might have another. All three do, if you don't read them properly. So let's look perfectly. If Jesus, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on 
the right cheek, okay? I want you to point at your right cheek, okay? Here's my right fist. How do I hit your right cheek? Backhand. Backhand. Jesus is talking about a very specific motion of a backhand. That Jesus is saying when you are backhanded, turn the other cheek. So what does this mean? What does it mean culturally to backhand someone? It's, it's the same now as it is then. It's a way of saying, I can hit you and you cannot defend yourself or fight back because the law's on my side. So let me tell you who in ancient times was backhanded. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the chain of events about how violence is passed on from person to person. Okay, ready? Ready for this? A Roman soldier can backhand a Jewish citizen with no negative impact. It's a way of asserting dominance over you. It's a way of, of giving you the indignity that I feel you deserve as somebody that needs to be put in your place. So a Roman soldier can backhand a Jewish citizen. A adult can backhand a slave. A husband can backhand a wife. A parent can backhand a child. And what tends to happen in these situations is what certainly happened in Jesus' day is those at the top passed down violence that went down every chain all the way down to parents striking children on the right cheek, saying, you can't defend yourself. I own you. You're under my control, my authority. And to assert that, I'm going to hit you with my backhand, which is a way of, of reinforcing there's no defense against me and there's no repercussions to me harming you. It's about robbing people of dignity and freedom. When you turn the other cheek to face the backhand, what you are saying is treat me as an equal. You don't backhand someone of equal status. If, you, if you're going to scrap, then you scrap, and you have to defend yourself. And, and then in that situation, you're aiming for the left cheek because you've made a fist with your hand. And what Jesus is saying in here is let insist that people treat you with dignity. Don't simply receive it. Don't stand up and fight the person, but turn the cheek. Face them directly. Push a confrontation with them, saying, do not treat me as an inferior. Jesus died for me the same as he died for you. I will not strike back, so it's not violent, but I will insist you treat me as an equal, which is confrontational. Nonviolent, but confrontational. Direct. I will insist that we are equals before the eyes of God. And I will, I will find a creative third-way solution to turn the other cheek and expose the system that allows people to go right on down the chain, backhanding each other and, and insisting on this Roman view of order. Next, if somebody sues you for your outer garment, give them your cloak as well, which is a way of saying, if someone takes your outer garment, give them your undergarments as well. Now, everyone Jesus is speaking to 
knew and understood the law. I'm going to read it to you. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. It should be behind me as well. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. I just think of how much dignity is given in this passage, in this passage from Deuteronomy, for somebody who is in debt to a wealthy person. Again, this is cultural. That This is somebody that's at the top. You owe me money. I own you. I can slap you. That This is somebody culturally at the top. Just listen to the kindness of God's words here. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you're making the pledge bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. So when you have somebody that, let's say it's somebody that owns a small plot of land that doesn't have enough money to buy seed and needs a loan to buy the seed to plant crops and we'll pay you back. And they don't have any collateral offer other than their outer garment. And this is a garment that would have been worn outside in the day, you know, especially in the winter when it gets a little bit colder. But it's also what somebody would have, who's poor would have worn at night to bed. It served as both protection from the cold in the day and a blanket at night, because they didn't have blankets. The, the poor couldn't afford to buy this, this blanket to lay over themselves when they go to sleep at night. So it's a way of, it's, God institutes into law a compassionate way to collect collateral, to collect the last thing of value a poor person may have, without leaving them naked and exposed to the cold of night, without walking into their house saying, I, I can walk into your house, I can take what I want now because you owe me money. The law says stay outside, give the person dignity of a private space, and give them the dignity of returning their cloak to them at night so they can have something to sleep on, so they're not exposed and naked to the cold at night. Uh, otherwise, they would have nothing. They would have no privacy because people could just walk on in, and their very last shred of any kind of wealth is taken off their back, left naked and cold at night. So what Jesus is saying, if somebody wants to take your cloak and wants to keep it, then give them your undergarments as well. And you think, well, John, that leaves nothing on. Exactly. That leaves the person literally naked. Standing naked before them and confronting them with what they're doing. Saying, you've taken everything from me. This is how you've left me. Naked and poor. And, and Walter Wink, who has completely transformed my understanding of this passage, um, says, talks about when you view a naked person in, in, in ancient Near East culture, the shame's on you for viewing it. It's not on the person who was naked. When you, when you see a naked person, you, you feel the shame. You feel that. And, and Jesus is saying, shame them through your nakedness to show them what they're really doing. This is a way of exposing to them, look at what you're doing to me. You are leaving me naked and exposed. It's not just a, a person standing naked before them. It's the whole system stood naked to be seen by everyone, perhaps for the very first time, to see the injustice of it all. And same with example three. Who would ask you to carry their burden for a mile? A soldier. Full stop, period. A, a soldier had the right to impose on any citizen 
their duty and obligation as somebody who enjoys the peace of Rome to carry the burden of a soldier for a mile. And so you think about the sword, the clothing, all, all the accoutrements to say something in fancy French, uh, to, to carry them, for, that, that, that's a heavy burden. And so there, there once was a time when there was no limitations. You, a soldier could ask you to carry their burden for as long as they wanted you to. And that, you think about that, if you're working, you're trying to provide, maybe it's harvest, this is the most important time of working, and a soldier comes by and says, you carry my burden and could walk a half day's journey away from your family land, have to go home at night, and this, this lack of control led to a riot here and, and then a, a fire at an outpost over there until finally Caesar said, enough, tell the soldiers they can only ask for one mile. Now that this is the Roman road, every mile is marked by a mile marker. You guessed it. And you know what I guarantee was not going to be found anywhere near a mile marker on the Roman road? A peasant, a potential load carrier. They would, once their mile was up, you would drop the burden down and you would run back home as quick as you could because the last thing you would want is another soldier to say, you're done with him, it's my turn now. I haven't asked you of a mile, but you, your obligation's done, it's fulfilled, you get out of there as quick as you could. And now imagine, you're a Roman soldier, you're tired, you could be carrying your burden, you found somebody by luck to carry it for a mile, so you're hydrating and stretching and, and uh, walking ahead of the person because you would never dignify that person by walking alongside them. Or, so tell me about your life. Tell me about, how, no, you, this, this person is far beneath your status um, and you're angry and, and maybe looking for an for a op opportunity to, to give the backhand we talked about previously. And, and they get to the mile marker and they turn around to get their stuff back and the person keeps walking. And it says, uh, stop, you know, your, your obligation's up, please stop. And the guy says, oh, you know, I'm gonna carry it for another mile. And then you think, that's cool, an extra mile, I'm tired. But I know that there are severe repercussions to me, because this is Caesar himself that said, only one mile. And the centurion in charge of us will flog me, will deny me food that night. There's, there's serious consequences. So you think, well, maybe. I mean, if you're, if you're volunteering, would you mind telling my superiors? And then all of a sudden, they, they're walking and everybody's looking at you and you're like, never mind, this isn't worth all the effort. So you start jogging behind and say, hey, can you put that down, please? And the person just keeps walking. Nah, I'm gonna go an extra mile for you. And, and, and it turns into a scene of a person in charge with the power and authority demanding somebody carrying their stuff to the second mile, where now the soldier is begging them, please put my things down, I beg of you, stop trying to grab them and take it away. Do you see how the power has shifted? The power that once belonged to the Roman soldier demanding a mile, now becomes the person carrying the burden an extra mile, putting this person at risk and exposing, again, injustice, an imbalance of power. Um, a Roman soldier comically begging them, please put my things down. I need to carry my stuff. Please let it down. And, and then maybe the person does. And as the, as the soldier's putting it down, maybe he's moved by the Holy Spirit and, and says, you know, there's someone who carries burdens who never puts them down. 
There's somebody who will carry burdens all the way to death. And he is someone who has said his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And the burden, this burden that you carry is heavy, but it's not as heavy as the burden of sin and of death itself. All that Jesus leaves after to us is the burden of joy and life and peace. In each example, the power shifts. In each example, what is unseen, the, the powers of injustice, the strings that remain hidden from our eyes, particularly those of us who live in positions of power and authority, don't see the strings until someone confronts us with it. The third way is the way of love because its aim is to liberate both the oppressed and the oppressor. It is the way of freedom because it binds, it breaks the chains that bind them together because those who are oppressed and the oppressors are burdened with the same chains. And perhaps the chains of being the oppressor is the heaviest of all because it robs of humanity. The third way provides a way for everyone to be free. In conflict, we often lack the creativity to see a choice between fighting and fleeing. If we fight, if we get in, give into our anger, then we win. I remember going to Biola University, having J.P. Moreland. And every once in a while, J.P. Moreland, who was this apologetics uh, wonderkind, which is now that was German, French, three languages represented and Greek references. That's four. You're getting a, a full meal today. And he would every once in a while talk about debates. He would win. And we would all as 19-year-old Biola Christian kids lean forward like, yes. And he would, he would tell stories of absolutely dismantling his interlocutors. Is that the word? His debate partners. And we would like, it, it, it came to the point where it began to feel more like a sporting event where you're cheering for your team. And never once did you tell a story of embarrassing an opponent and that opponent coming and saying, tell me more about this Jesus, I wish to know more. It, it, it didn't leave the world any different even when he won. And if we flee, then they win and we lose. But Jesus is saying in both scenario, everybody loses. You have to find a new way to navigate conflict. And the beauty of the third way is it creates the possibility of both sides winning. The person who slaps the person and the person looks at them, they have an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. And both sides win. The person who strips naked, has the, per, the, the judicial system has the opportunity to say, this is wrong, what we're doing. The way that he's stripped naked in front of us has revealed to us that, that that's what we're actually doing to them financially. We're leaving him with vulnerable and without any possibility. Here's your cloak back. And the soldier says, I will no longer ask people to carry unjust burdens. This, I will carry what is mine to carry. The, the poor have already enough burdens to carry. And in every situation, Jesus gives an example of somebody who chooses a way of nonviolence but is direct and confrontational and creating the opportunity for people to, to be confronted with what they're doing and turn 
and, and seek forgiveness and be reconciled. When we turn the other cheek, there's always the possibility that the person will unclench their fist and walk away. If we stand naked in, in, in front and say, this is what you're doing to me, there's always the possibility that you'll have your cloak returned to you. And if you go the extra mile, there's always the possibility that the soldier decides to stop interrupting the people that are working and carry their own burden. The system that keeps the oppressed and the oppressors captive is undone by the third way. A new script that offers liberation that's grounded in love and liberation for everyone. And I want to end this sermon by a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's already been quoted several times in my sermon, although uncredited. Um, but one of the, he was a student of the third way, talked openly of the third way, um, was living out his understanding of Jesus' teaching, particularly the text I read and the Beatitudes today. Um, and he insisted on the dual liberation of his people and his oppressors, committed to nonviolent resistance, which is just another name for the third way. Nonviolent resistance, direct nonviolent confrontation. He, he, I want to end his sermon as we come to the table. I'm going to end my sermon. It's not his, it's mine. And, uh, but this is his words, and you'll forgive me if I don't try to match his energy and passion in reading it. Um, but this is the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, and in each, each of these weeks, I want to pull somebody from our own, from history, to illustrate the third way. Um, this is what he says. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. So come to the table and celebrate the double victory of the cross. Jesus would not resort to violence, but he would not flee. He would only love and died for the freedom both of his friends and his enemies. We come to the table to receive the gift of the bread and the cup and find the courage and creativity to live in the third way. And as you return to your seat, consider how God is calling you to the third way. Think about your conflicts, your passions, the things that keep you up awake at night, and ask for the, the imagination to live a third way in conflict. Um, consider how God is calling you the third way so that we can meet our enemies with the soul force that Dr. King talked about and lived, for it is the same thing Jesus taught and lived.
Let's come to the table. Fathers, we come to the table this morning. We ask that you would open and awaken our imagination to a third way to deal with the conflict in our lives, from the societal divisions to the divisions in our own household to the divisions um, in our families and friendships and works, Lord, that in each way that we would ask, what is the third way forward here? What is a way that is direct, but a way that is nonviolent, a way that does not demean ourselves by stooping um, to the evil done against us, but instead, Lord, may we rewrite the rules as the third way. Teach us to be students of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Come to the table.